Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Mark, I'm so excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closer. Thanks for sparing this afternoon with me. No problem, my man. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So I'm glad we're, we're finally connected. We've tried to do this a couple of times when you were in Chicago, but it didn't happen. It had to wait until we had COVID-19. So you can be quarantined <laughs> and we can do this. That's right, man. We, we, we've had, I've had several Chicago plans uh, drop off the map. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of unfortunate, but that, that's, uh, hopefully it's all for the better. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We're still trying to figure it out, I think. Most certainly. So obviously for the, the audience that may not have heard of Mark, can you share a little bit about who you are? Yeah, uh, my name is Mark Costaglo. I am the VP of Sales at Outreach. And uh, I'm just like, I'm just a sales guy. I nerd out on sales. That's the thing I like. I say I only have three things in my life, my faith, my family, and outreach. So that pretty much sums me up. I don't don't have a bunch of buddies to go out drinking with. I'm not in any bowling leagues. I don't have any woodworking hobbies. Uh, pretty much those three things are all I got time for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want to share a little bit about the story of how you got to outreach? Because that's an interesting story. Yeah, sure. So, um, I was leading uh, a sales team for a large billion dollar publicly traded company that was um, uh, going through some tough times. And uh, I started looking for sales tools to kind of help me figure things out. And in, in that journey, I met a, a young man named Izzy Gersowitz in New York City. And uh, Izzy and I talked on a long uh, ride. I was doing from Pennsylvania to South Carolina to ride with the rep. And in that uh, ride, we kind of uh, became friends. I gave him some advice. It really helped him out. And he called me a couple weeks later and he's like, hey man, you know, I really owe you. You helped me out a ton. You need to meet this Manny Medina guy I just met. You guys would be awesome together. So I uh, did a call with Manny. Manny uh, ended up trying to sell me outreach for my original team. Well, I thought Outreach was this software company and it was like, you know, this awesome new tool and it was kind of blew my mind. And uh, then my entire sales team got laid off. Hmm. And so I, I had to call Manny and say, hey, listen, you know, I can't buy this. And I was going around the country then after that doing a bunch of sales trainings and stuff like that for this company. And I um, was in Seattle and I went a day early and I called him and I was like, hey guys, you know, I, uh, uh, I'd love to meet you. You know, I was really intrigued about what you're doing and Manny and I kind of struck up a friendship along with Andrew Kinzer, the other, one of the other co-founders and Manny's like, Hey, can you help me on some sales calls? And I did that. And, uh, uh, after a while I just went to Manny and was like, listen, why am I not selling outreach? Mm -hmm. and we can't afford you. And I said, well, I'll do it on a hundred percent commission. And so, uh, uh, he's like, we can afford that. And he sent me a bunch of leads the next day. I started selling outreach and within a day or two, I was doing demos from 7 AM to five or 6 PM every night and then picking it back up again and doing my follow-up after I put the kids and the wife to bed at 10 or 10 30. And I do that till two or three in the morning and then get back up at seven and do it all over again. And it took us about six months. We sold a million dollars worth of outreach in the first six months, raised our wow. seed round and then Manny asked me to build out the sales team from there. It's crazy. I, I actually remember I was at the inbound conference in uh, in Boston when Manny actually did the demo of outreach to us. 
Uh, it had to be like 2015 or 2016 around then. Is that when? Yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah. So it's crazy where, where you are today, right? Outreach has grown so fast. And now you have your own conference and everything. So pretty interesting story of how you got to be the VP of sales. <clears throat> yeah, I got lucky. <laughs> so now you're not just a VP of sales or outreach, you're also an author. You've published a book. Uh, you co-wrote a book with Manny and, and Mark. Um, so tell me a little bit about sales, sales engagement, and the whole concept behind this book. Yeah, so I think that uh, we have a unique um, opportunity at Outreach to create a category of software that's never uh, existed before. And so when you're doing something like that, there's a lot of things that you learn along the way and a lot of new tactics that can be really impactful that when you pair that behavior and that strategy with software, magical things can happen. And in our first four years at Outreach, we learned so much about what technology can do to help salespeople and how this idea of sales engagement, while it's a, you know, always been a practice of salespeople to engage with their customers and prospects. The idea of pairing that with technology had never existed. And so when we learned all this stuff, we thought, man, we, we, we have this knowledge that we think that would be useful for other people. So Max came to us one day and he's like, hey, I think we should write a book on sales engagement. And I think we should start a podcast on sales engagement. So we did both. and. Max was instrumental at like writing that book and he took care of a ton of the content, Manny and I contributed and, and they slapped all three of our names on the front. But uh, I think, you know, really what it's about is sharing our learnings and the things that we think about uh, when you compare like this age old problem with sales with a uh, new school technology to, to figure it out. Yeah, most certainly. And that's essentially what I want to touch on. So before we get there, my question is, how has your out outlook on uh, sales as a whole, right, as a function, how has it changed over the years, especially with the advent of technology and things like that? I don't know if my outlook has changed as much as my desires were able to be fulfilled by technology. So I always had this idea that if I took sales reps and said, let's make it as much about science as we do about art, then I would be able to create like a machine that would really give reps a chance to be successful. And so like that's what it is about me is I think that the more a rep has to think about what to do, the more manual mundane activities that they have to remember to do, the less effective they'll be. And so I, I don't know if it's changed the way that I've thought about sales as much as been able to create what I always wanted to create. Mm -hmm. I had Mark Roberts, the former CRO of HubSpot on my show a while back, and he kind of had the same same mindset. I think it takes a mark to kind of figure this out. Uh, every company Maybe. needs a mark, I suppose. Um, but basically, he kind of said the same thing because he, he was trained as an engineer. So he looked at patterns and he said, hey, there has to be I have to create a pattern in how how I can set every sales rep uh, up for success and then basically he tried to figure out what is that pattern so he went all the way back to hiring even from hiring he said i gotta figure out am i hiring the same type of caliber people right and then am i providing the same type of training then am i providing the same amount of leads then am i ex expecting them to put all those leads through the same process and then ultimately am i getting the same type of outcome at the end of it right so then he can say where is my problem is it in the hiring problem is it a training problem is it in the uh, actual execution of the process problem or is it at the you know what is what is the problem 
So basically, I think that's that's what you're alluding to, right? And essentially, that's the problem that outreach actually try to solve for. Yeah. So there's this old book called Scientific Management, and uh, it it is a concept that might be the most fast, it might be the fastest spreading concept in in in, in uh, the industrial in the in the industrial age, mm-hmm. and. The idea is that there was this guy who sat down and he would take a stopwatch and he would say, okay, do the next step. And he would stop it and record and do the next step, stop it, record for people making, I think they were making some kind of industrial equipment or steel or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so he did that day after day, week after week. And he started to realize if I tell the workers to hold the shovel like this, they actually get in three more shovel thrusts a minute. And if I move the barrel from here to here, they can actually you know, decrease the time it takes the shovel to the barrel by half a second, right? And so he started to get into this idea and him and Henry Ford like combine that. You have this assembly line and you have this scientific management principle. And really what it comes down to, if you boil it down to its essence is the more variables a process has, the less likely you are to diagnose what's wrong with the process, so the mm. less likely you are to actually fix it. Mm. And so I think that that's what sales is, is sales is a series of small tasks that are put into a process. And if you can standardize the tasks, there's less variables and you can actually figure out what's going wrong, which means you have a chance to fix things versus the reason I think most uh, sales leaders have no efficacy or they can't affect change is because they don't fig- they can't figure out what's going wrong so they're just doing peanut butter solutions and spreading it out all over the bread rather than taking one little thing that they know everybody's doing wrong and fixing that thing yeah so when when you talk about that right you breaking up all these all these processes so you can kind of pinpoint the solution so where do you see is obviously outreach is in the business automating some of that sales task and, and, and basically scaling it, right? So what do you see is the role of automation in, in the sales uh, in, uh, as we are in, in it today and as, as, as the future evolves? Where do you see is the role of automation in that sales process? So in that, autom- in that um, scientific management and uh, assembly line, type of philosophy, automation is like the, the key that unlocks it all. So if I can have a task that a human will do, the human has the ability to say right before they do it, well, maybe I should do it a bit differently, or maybe I should just skip this part, or maybe like, you know, I should go back and do this over here instead of over there. And that's what craze, creates all those different variables that makes it very difficult to measure and figure out what's going on. What automation says is, I'm gonna have a machine or technology do this the same way at the same time every single time, and then I can measure how it's working so I can adjust how the machine works. And so, you know, it, it's I think automation it, in a, the analogy of, well, you know, would you rather have uh, you know a human put the lug nuts on your tire every time, or would you rather have a precision robotic machine that does it every time? You know, the human might not mess up that much, but when they do and the wheel falls off the car, that's really bad. But the machine will never mess up. The machine will always do the same exact thing. So I think that for some parts of sales, you can make it a machine. Mm-hmm. You know, like figuring out your list of people who to cold call, the machine should tell you who that is. You shouldn't mm-hmm. have to 
figure that out yourself. And so automate as much as you can, as much as you feel comfortable with, because that's less variability in your process. Yeah, and I think we have the cognitive bias, right? We think like, oh, I think I should send the email at 9 a.m., but but some of those decisions, you don't have to spend your brain cells to figure that out. Technology can tell you who to call, depending on the time zone and where that person is or whether or not they open the email, things of that nature. So there's definitely that value in that for sure. So in your book, you talk about humanizing, right? And then how do you humanize? That's, that's the part I'm still struggling with, right? And still have it do it at scale, right? And especially when you have to do, and you, you talk about a concept of you know, plate spinning in your prior talks and things of that nature. So talk to me a little bit about how you humanize your sales outreach and still be able to do it at scale. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think that the, the number one guideline is don't over-index on humanizing. And the reason I can say that is because we did that at Outreach. We uh, had a, a leader that came in that was running our SDR org. He was here for a short time. He meant to put in a process that was a test, but as he was leaving, the managers that he was managing instead thought that he wanted to actually implement that. They implemented it and it, it was overly humanized, overly personalized, overly researched. And uh, while we our quality went up, our quantity went down so much we weren't able to compensate. And so what we found through that was that there's a balance. So don't over index on humanization and personalization. It, 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 there becomes a you know, law of uh, you know, decreasing returns mm -hmm. and there's an opportunity cost to doing two hours of research on a single lead. I think that the way that I think about it is you should create small process driven pieces of personalization that are tested to matter. And so for example, you should have one sentence in the email that is personalized, uh, not three paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's how we think about it here is like, in order to make it scalable, it has to be done in a process and it has to be fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if it's not effective, then it doesn't matter. So of course it has to be that as well. But I think that's how we think about it is, uh, personalize as little as you can uh, and just watch that return curve. And at some point it spills over and falls off a cliff and you should personalize up to that point as long as you're hitting your numbers. Yeah, and I think sometimes sales rep has the tendency to kind of make excuses for why they can't make the number of calls or they can't make the number of activities required because they say, oh, it takes me a long time to research. I can't make every, you know, I can't make 50 calls a day because I have to look at a, their website and what where they worked and their, their prior history of work, whatever those things are, right? And they make excuses for it. And I think what you're explaining kind of eliminates a reason for making excuses essentially. You don't need to have a lot of insight into, and you can allow technology to do some of that research for you as well, right? You, you yeah, can... well, cold calling is not a natural thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think most sales reps will do anything uh, to avoid it in terms of like, if it's uncomfortable, people mostly will avoid uncomfortable things. So for me, I think it's about, you know, how do you get people comfortable with it more than how do you get in and take then take away excuses you know i mean i think that's a better solve than excuse basing the the you don't need to do all of the research and stuff it's just an excuse because they're uncomfortable deal with the root issue the uncomfortability and then they won't make the same excuses so you know i i take it back to like the root cause mm -hmm. uh, and outreach we have this training uh time uh for uh sdrs called agoji 
And during that uh, Agoji period, we had them do a lot of stuff. And one of the things they do is they actually call for a day and try to sell pizza to random businesses. Mm. And you can imagine they have to make a hundred calls or whatever. 99% of people say no. And then at the end of the day, they maybe sold a couple pizzas or whatever. You know, and when they sell a pizza, we just buy it and send it to them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then at the, at the end of the day, the manager goes, that's the worst cold calling day you'll ever have. You just had your worst, hardest, <laughs> crackiest, suckiest uh, cold calling day ever. It will only be uphill from here. And that psychologically helps people be like, well, why do I need to be uncomfortable with it? I may look through that day. Mm -hmm. So that's a crazy exercise. I never heard of a concept like that. Are there any other secrets in your weapon, uh, in your uh, arsenal that gets people prepared? Our wizard, so I don't handle that stuff anymore. Our wizard on that stuff is Sam Nelson. He created the Agoji program for SDRs here at Outreach. He's super popular on LinkedIn. He does videos all the time. If people want to check out Sam Nelson, they'll, they'll get more information than they can digest, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy concept. I'll certainly probably have him on one of the episodes in the future. So are there any predictions that you have in terms of where with the technology and all this, uh, where the sales as a role is headed in the future? Do you, do you foresee any drastic changes where AI is driving more and more of our sales efforts or anything like that? Yeah, I, um, I think that what sales is gonna come to is people that can have great conversations will become spectacular performers. And people that can't won't be able to stay in the profession. And so I've met salespeople in my career that could hustle their way or have a relationship in a way that caused them to succeed. And, you know, oh, man, I'm going to just put in my 200 dials, play the numbers, I'll make it happen. But they're not really a great seller. Mm -hmm. Or guys are like, you know, I got my nine guys that I go golfing with every week. And, you know, I think that that's going to go away. I think what's going to become the, the key skill as technology enables all this other stuff is can you get on the phone and add value be persuasive be educational not be manipulative be authentic and really like help the person on the other end of the line and if you can do that then you'll i think you'll win because we're going to have more and more opportunities to have those type of conversations as technology removes some of the barriers that exist right now to those so that, that kind of brings up my question around kind of the characteristics of sales leaders as well as the individual contributors. What have you seen some of the, you know, the best performing, A performing, um, you know, A, A grade sales leaders? What are some of the characters that you've seen in them that makes them uh, make their organization run like a machine on the sales side? Um, so obviously, you know, there's the easy things like trust, you know, your people have to trust you, you have to be empathetic. You know, people have to know that you've got their backs and they care for you. Uh, I think that there's two things, though, that really separate a great sales leader. And one is uh, coaching or creating space. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to get street cred of sitting down with a rep and saying, these are three things that you can do in a call that do better, and then them doing it makes all the difference. And the way you do that is you create space. And like, I look at that as my job as, as a leader. My job isn't to solve your problem. My job is to open up space for you to be creative, to solve your own problem. And so you combine coaching and creating space into that one thing, because what you want to do is you want a rep to think that they came up with the own, their own way 
to change their behavior to get better results because people's own ideas are the ones that they adopt the easiest and the fastest. And so create the space, let your rep self-diagnose, guide the diagnosis in the areas where it needs to be, and then make sure that that, uh, that, that diagnosis and the change actually drives results. That, that's gonna be one of the number one things. And then the second thing is, is, you know, if I give you a dashboard in Tableau or a spreadsheet in Excel or a chart in Outreach, to, you, you know, most of those charts make you take two or three data points and create a narrative that's true. For example, most of our revenue comes in on the last week of the month. Uh, we see that uh, our mix of new logo to expansion or cross-sell upsell revenue is very high new logo in the last week of the month. But we also see that our, you know, our license price is low and our average deal size is lower in those weeks. So the story I would tell myself when I look at all those data points together is reps in this area are discounting at the end of the month because they haven't provided the value early enough and they haven't done something to create an urgency to sign before that end of the month pressure happens. So I need to create a program to get deals to close in the third week of the month rather than the fourth week of the month so I can increase these other areas. Mm -hmm. So like that, that, using data to create a narrative that leads to a plan of action that changes rep behavior. Uh, I think that that's, that's the second great skill of a, of a new school model and often manager leader. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, the, the, the fact that you've just identified, right. So essentially you gotta be very close to your, your reps to be able to identify all those areas where they need the coach, you know, coaching and then be able to provide that coaching necessary. But oftentimes they're completely removed and all they do is, hey, you're not meeting your quota and that's about the conversation that they have and then giving them pressure um, if they don't meet the quota. Um, so what, what are some practical things, uh, especially if you're a smaller organization, you don't have, a, you know, you don't have the, the luxury of having multiple tiers of uh, leadership, what are some of the things that smaller organizations can do to kind of find um, ways to really coach their, uh, their up and coming reps? The only, I think every sales leader would say that coaching reps is important. And the only reason that you don't do it is because you're not intentional. Mm -hmm. So if you want to coach more, then just coach more. You know what I mean? Like my, my a lot of my reps show up to 7 a.m. coaching sessions with their managers. That, hmm. you know why? Because they're valuable and it causes them to make more money. And we have that kind of a culture here because we built the kind of culture of, hey, I'm going to like, I'm going to own my own development, my own success. And if that means showing up early or staying a little late or squeezing a lunch one day, like we're going to do that. And you know, not that we're like cracking the whip or anything, mm -hmm. but the, when you have like for, for me, if you called me, Sam, and you were like, Hey, Mark, uh, I can meet with you tomorrow at 4:30 AM. That's the only time I have. And I'm going to teach you three things that are going to change your life. Guess who's showing up at 4:30 in the morning for the phone call? Me. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that, you know, once you do it and you provide value, then you just need to be intentional. Like if you want to coach your reps more, schedule an hour a day to coach your reps. Like it's not hard. Mm -hmm. It really mm -hmm. isn't hard. It's just you let other things get in the way. Which brings up a question about the actual coachability of the rep, right? So what are some of the things other than coachability that you've seen in top performing individual contributors that you're like, hey man, I mean, I know work ethic and they they show up to work and doing that and coachable. That's like some some of the common things that I've hear. Are there anything else that you've you've seen people overlook some qualities that in top performing sales rep? 
No, you know, collaboration. We have a very collaborative environment here. I can tell usually within the first four or five days if a rep will be successful. If they're got their headphones on, they're in their computer, they're listening to calls, studying the materials, going through the lessons that we provide them, and they're trying to figure it out themselves and they're just locked in, then uh, they're probably not going to be successful. If they watch something and then they turn around and their backs to their computer and they talk to their peers about, hey, I just listened to this. Why would he say that? And how does this work? And like, if this, if I was to say this, would this sound right? Or does it, those kind of reps uh, that engage in our culture win here? And I think that that collaboration, I think, is something. But you know, it's interesting coachability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want me to tell you how I determine coachability in an interview? Yeah, I'd love to hear that. All right, so coachability is hard to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, what I do in interviews now is I ask, I say, hey, Samuel, tell me what your number one objection is. And you'll tell me price or I already have a provider or too busy or whatever, right? And I'll say, all right, let's do a role play over here. I know this is weird in an interview, but let's do a role play. I'm going to be the client. You're going to be the seller. And I'm going to give you this objection. And let's see how you overcome it. And I'll say, so you know what, Samuel, like I looked at what you guys do, it makes a lot of sense. You guys have been really awesome in the sales process, but you're just much more expensive than what we're doing right now. And we don't feel like we can spend more money. And then the rep goes through their objection handling, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I am looking a little bit about how they overcome objections uh, in the words they say, but mostly I'm looking for, is there a, a framework mm-hmm. that they use? So, you know, bad reps or bad reps will just start selling me. Oh, well, listen, you know, we're less expensive in this way, or, you know, this is some features that you said you were interested in. Good reps will ask me a question and they'll say, well, you know, uh, I thought, you know, we were on track for getting this deal done. Like, why is price coming up now and it didn't come up earlier? Whatever version they'll ask me. But whatever they do, whether it's good or bad, when they're in, when they stop, I say, okay, that was excellent. Let me ask, you mind if we do, let me ask you a question. Can we, I know this is weird for an interview, but could I coach you for a second? Mm-hmm. And people that are coachable will sit up, grab their notebook and grab a pen. People that aren't will be like, yeah, you can coach me because they know they can't say no. And all their nonverbal cues will shut down. And then I'll coach them and I'll find something that I can help them do better. And I'll say, would you mind if we redid that? Mm-hmm. I want to see you redo that with the coaching I just gave you. And so I'll give them the objection again, and then I'll watch them to see if they can take the coaching. And so in like a 10-minute period, I can see, like, are they open to coaching because of their nonverbal communication? And then can they apply coaching, which I think is actually the hidden part of mm-hmm. coachability. Most people say, hey, are you coachable? Tell me a time you were coached. Tell me all this kind of stuff. And that, and, oh, yeah, all of that's for feedback. Listen, you may listen all you can and act like you care, but if you can't put the feedback into action and change it doesn't matter and in that moment in that interview i see if they can change their behavior based on on feedback i give them right in right then and there and that's how i uh assess coachability it works really well yeah i mean it's almost like putting them in before you hired them you already kind of tested them so you're not you're not wasting serious dollars to to find out later on this person is not very coachable and I think there's been some study that I think the cost of a, a making a wrong hire in a sales profession is about like a, a BMW 7 Series, like $75,000, $80,000 is what I heard. So you don't, you don't want to make a mistake and then have a, you know attrition in the future. The, the rep doesn't even stick around anyway. So right. what, what advice do you have for an aspiring um, 
you know, a, a, a top performer who's aspiring to be a sales leader, what advice do you have for someone like that uh, to make sure that they're on course to, to reach those objectives that they have? If you want to become a sales leader? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I tell this people all the time, the number one way I think that you can become a great sales leader is to actually understand what makes you a great seller and then be able to teach it. So like if I went to Steph Curry right now, my guess is he would to the minute detail be able to explain to me how to do a jump shot and then he could sit with me and help me get closer to his picture of greatness and what makes him great. Mm-hmm. The same thing for a great sales leader is they can say in a discovery call, this is exactly what you do. This is the science and the reasons why you do it. And now I'm going to explain it to you in a way that's valuable to you and gets you to change. And so the way you have to like start to pay attention to how you do things and then categorize them, document them, and then make sure you can explain them and teach them and talk about the why, the science and stuff behind it. Once you can do that, then I think that you're, you'll be a great sales coach. And then you'll learn all the numbers and that kind of stuff, that the other leadership stuff as you go along. But like that first thing that you want to do is like have the street cred, be able to coach and affect change on your sales team. And the only way to do that is with coaching. Mm-hmm. So being able, being able to actually, not just being able to do it, but being able to teach somebody how to do what you were able to do, right? And I think some people aren't really cut out. That's another fact too, right? Some people are just good at it as an individual contributor, but they just don't have the skill set of a, of a manager or a senior leader at, t- at times. And I think they just have to recognize that. Yeah, right. You know, some people can't explain to you why they're good. Mm-hmm. And if they can't explain it to you, then they probably don't have a process they follow. If they don't have a process, then you can't figure out what's going wrong in that parts of that process to get better. Mm-hmm. So where you're at is you're in this really risky situation and that kind of person will create reps like that, which you can't have if you want to scale. You got three mm-hmm. or four reps, no big deal. You got three or 400 reps, doesn't work. Yeah. What, what, uh, what kind of you know, bad advice have you heard sales professionals give about the sales function or, or how to do sales? Have you heard any bad advices that you hear and you say, man, that's not, that's not accurate at all? Yeah, listen, I hear a lot of uh, companies <laughs> say you should over-personalize, don't ever send a templated email, don't do automated emails. That's all BS, it's all personal preference. I, I, I've had to go, I've gone to bat on, on, with two or three very well-known sales trainers. Mm-hmm. And they give advice based on their own personal preference and what helps their company. When I have data that shows if you take a personalized email with one sentence personalized and you bump it two times with automated emails that are one or two sentences long that a rep never writes, it just go out automatically, that you see astronomically better results than if you wrote three personalized emails. Mm-hmm. And the amount of time it took shrunk to you know a, a ton, right? Mm-hmm. And so like that kind of advice uh, is you know self-serving and just uh, preference driven versus data driven. And so that's the number one thing I do is people talk about their preference. Oh, don't ever send an email that says just checking in. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? We did a uh, we did a scientific study on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails, and just checking in actually works. <laughs> you know, so. I think people stay opinion as fact, and that's mm-hmm. the number one thing is just say, hey, this is my opinion. I don't think this works, and then be willing to test it to see if you're right or wrong. 
But I do think that there's a there's a the truth to the fact that you need to add value every time you follow up, right? You you don't want just follow up for the sake of follow up, right? Because people are getting inundated with emails. You got to have some reason why you're following up, right? And you need to have some value that you add every time you touch that prospect. I don't know. So mm-hmm. listen, let's say that I write you a great email, Samuel, today, like the email that addresses the top three things that you care about in your business. And I send it right now. Mm-hmm. But also what happened is oh, there's a fire at work. You know, your kids uh, got sick at school or whatever mm-hmm. they're doing now. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, you have 17 other unread messages because you have met, you think like, listen, you're not going to read my email. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. But then if I bump it two days later with an email that just says, hey, Samuel, did you get the email below? There's no value there. Mm-hmm. Except for I got back to the top of your inbox, but maybe now you're reading your coffee in the morning and you see my email come in and you click on it and then you read the email below and oh, so listen, I don't know if I believe that. I think mm-hmm. I, I think that really what it comes down to almost more important than the value is, is the person going to be receptive right now? And have you given them something that would capture that receptivity and convert it into engagement with you? And so, yes, you do have to have something of value. You can't send a one sentence email that says, Samuel, we need to meet, period. Mm-hmm. Actually, that'd be interesting to test to see what happened. But, you know, but when there's nothing there at all, like you can't send that email, but you can send that email if it's in a thread that has valuable stuff below mm-hmm. it. So, yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I, you've already done the test yourself, and you have empirical evidence to support your, your, your what you're saying. So I, I believe. But I think I've read enough blogs, right, where they always talk about this whole conversation around don't follow up for the sake of follow up, right? Always add value, and that's just what, and like you said, I guess I'm get, make, making my assumptions based on what other people have written and reading upon that. Yeah, right. So I guess that's a bad advice. Um, so speaking of which, I know I think in your book you also talked about the omni-channel uh, approach in, in sales as well, and I think especially the the older folks um, they probably you know either tend to rely heavily on phone or maybe just email, but you're you're also seeing uh, effectiveness in incorporating multiple different channels in the conversations, right? So w- what are some of the things you've tested to see work extremely well, especially on this uh, when you're talking to the C-level contacts? Have you seen some sort of a cadence or uh, touches that seem to work really well? So phone works best for us. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that for everybody. Email is effective for us and social is mildly effective. But here's the thing is, is uh, the world of prospects that you're reaching out to are all individuals. Every individual has a preferred method or methods of communication. Mm-hmm. If you leave out a method of communication, you therefore exclude a percentage of the audience of prospects that you're going after mm-hmm. and why do that you know and especially with automation and engagement tools like outreach there's zero reason to not just be in every channel and then what you do is over time you'll see which ones do the best and you put more time and effort into those but you always keep all of them otherwise mm-hmm. there's somebody that might need the insulin that you're selling to solve their diabetes but you didn't contact them on LinkedIn because you don't believe in LinkedIn and social selling and you just lost a sale, that would have been easy. Like why do that? Certainly understand. So I, I think in closing, I want to get to know a little bit more personal side of you. Um, basically, 
I'm sure there's been a lot of people who influence, influenced you and got, got you to where you are and kind of made you who you are, right? Who are some of the people that you would say, hey, they've really influenced my leadership style and got me to be the person that I am today? So I have, uh, professionally, uh, there's a guy named Rene Uyoa, who was a manager of mine in my first outside sales job that um, taught me a bunch of stuff that I thought I could all make better. It didn't work out as well. And he took me, you know, by the ear, you know, and grabbed me and was like, just do it how I told you to do it, Mark. Mm -hmm. And I listened to that the second time around and I had my best year ever. And then I learned what I was actually doing. And then that helped me to iterate on it better instead of just looking at it and thinking I understood it and iterating it and ended up making a bunch of mistakes that he'd already shown didn't work, right? And so that was, uh, that was one very influential one. And then the other one was Matt Millen, who was my boss for a while here at Outreach. And Matt really helped me put the, the theory and the word behind energy mm -hmm. and leading with like, you know, running to the fire, don't run away from it. And just like, you know, really being ultra communicative and like being aware of in a meeting, like how you communicate and how you think about things and how you can talk about things really makes a difference in how people receive them and it's really good to be super intentional about that stuff so those are two people that i've had a profound effect on me renee taught me process Millen helped me really understand the energy part of it and i think you combine those two and hopefully i'm a pretty good sales leader I think so some days some days I <laughs> <laughs> knowing, knowing what you know today right what would you do different um if you had to do it all over again well, so that's a hard question. If I did something differently, I might not end up where I'm at right now, and I'm really happy where I'm at right now. So I don't know if I would do anything different, but theoretically speaking, um, I think I probably, I lived in central Pennsylvania, and my career was defined by the geography of where I was at. Mm -hmm. And I probably would have been more aggressive earlier about going after jobs that I wanted rather than just taking jobs I could get. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that would have probably made a difference in my career and made me feel a little bit more fulfilled. Not a couple of jobs where I like my job, I like who, who I was working with, but that they were just a slog and very boring and not mm -hmm. challenging, whereas outreach challenges me mentally, emotionally, physically, like every day. Are there any productivity hacks that you have that you use uh, to stay, stay on top of everything that you have to deal with? So you should read Getting Things Done by David Allen. Uh, I think uh, I'm an inbox zero guy. I believe every email is one of three things. It's either a uh, call to action, do it. It's either uh, trash or delete it, or it's a uh, reference. Delegate, delegate yeah, or defer. Later, so I put it somewhere else, right? So uh, that's that's one of the things. And the other thing is 100% is, uh, do not use your calendar as a to-do list. Mm. Don't put something on your calendar that says, I need to call this person at this time, put that on your to-do list. The calendar is a very specific thing. It's meant to be a place where you put something that you and another person have to be together on in order to, to do it or to block out times of, so that you can get certain work done. But that those are two things that are important to me. Not a lot of people knew, know that you were actually a pastor for 15 years before you went, went into the sales field. How did you make that transition from uh, being a pastor to, to, to being in sales? Well, uh, 
I, my wife and I never really thought of ourselves as pastors. We had that title and I think people looked at us that way. I always had a full-time job. I've always mm-hmm. sold, uh, I've always, you know, supported my family through my career, not, not through, uh, the church. And so, you know, it, it really wasn't hard, but mm-hmm. I, I will say this is I've counseled marriage counseling, life coaching, you know, discipleship, all that kind of stuff. A lot of people in my life. And I think it did really help me be a much more empathetic and caring uh, sales leader. Mm-hmm. And you know, I do think that uh, one of my superpowers is I do really care about the people that work with me. And I consider that our um, we steward their careers. And that's really important to me. Like a new college student that comes to be an SDR here that comes up the ranks as an AE, like I, con- I consider it an honor to be able to to take their career and, and mold it and shape it and, and open up all these other doors for them later in their life. And so uh, I would say that that pastoring stuff really influenced me listening, really trying to find the understanding of what's going on versus, you know, just being a numbers driven guy, like, why aren't you hitting your quote up? Well, no, that's dumb. You stupid idiot. Like you just work harder and make more phone calls. Like I, I that, that approach never worked uh, when somebody tried it, tried it on me and, uh, luckily I never had a chance to try it on anyone else mm-hmm. and I wouldn't cause I don't think it works. Any, any parting wisdom for our audience? Um, no, I don't think so, man. Listen, I think listening is the key. I think mm-hmm. uh, expectations are the enemy. When you expect something in a sales call, you lose uh, being in the now to, understand that what you're hearing might be the most important thing that you need to hear. I think expectations uh, within your relationships poison your ability to like enjoy the person and, and do stuff. And, you know, I think the most important thing in life is to enjoy people. If you enjoy mm-hmm. people, you treat them kindly, you have great relationships, people will love you back and awesome things will happen. So those would those be the, the big things. Enjoy people and just listen really good, have no expectations. Well, I'm so happy that I I was able to do this interview with you, Mark. I certainly appreciate you taking this time. Did it, man. Yeah, thank you. Virtual, virtual, virtual high five. <laughs> Thanks again, Mark. All right, hey, talk to you soon. Okay. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.